0: I was thinking uh, this morning as Jeremy was playing that video that showed some pretty amazing aspects of God's creation, how finite man is and how foolish man is. Uh, It's nice to watch those things because God's been good to me in my life. He's given me the privilege of being in a lot of those places. I saw quite a few scenes on that video this morning where I've actually been. I've seen it with my own eyes couple of them Ricky and I have seen together. I don't know if he picked up on that, but Victoria Falls, we preached there. There was even a shot of the crags above Refugio Frey in there. I don't know if you caught that uh, with snow on it. But All praise to the maker of the mountains and the, the, of creation. Not only is he transcendent above his creation, but he's imminent and entered into his creation to redeem man. And really, that is not only the theme of the entire Bible, it's the theme of the book of Revelation, which we've been studying here. So uh, for those of you who are visiting, we've been studying exegetically through the book of Revelation. I'm just coming back from a seven-week hiatus. I've been down in South America with Ricky. We've been traveling, preaching the gospel, had a good time sharing that with the church Wednesday night. And some of those photos in that video looked like where we were up in the Andes preaching the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it was a true blessing, and it's nice to be back with you. One of my favorite things to do in all the world is to preach. It's one of the things I find some of the most enjoyment out of, but often what I love to do can be a burden, okay? And for various reasons, it is a burden this morning. So I would would ask that you pray for me, and we'll trust that the Lord will still use it, because His Word doesn't return void. Um, We're in Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to pick up right where we left off, right here in the heart of the message to the church at Sardis, the dead church. If you'd like to go back and listen and review from where we left off, these podcasts are posted uh, on our website fpgm.org and you can also subscribe to them on iTunes foolproof gospel Ministries studies and revelation so I hope they're a blessing to you I don't profess to have all the answers but I do know that a proper understanding of Scripture looks at the plain common-sense reading of the text it doesn't try to read into it something that's not there a proper understanding of Scripture interprets difficult passages with clear passages because God's Word never returns void. A proper understanding of Scripture is in agreement with the entire counsel of God's Word and does not overthrow or circumvent His promises either to the nation of Israel concerning Messiah or to the church. So with these things in mind, I think we can approach the book of Revelation and have a pretty clear understanding of what's going on in light of the rest of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament and these things were given so that we could be prepared for that day when Christ comes not only the day when he comes for his church his bride but the day when he comes to bring judgment and wrath upon this earth and to set up a kingdom of righteousness so we here at New Testament Fellowship just for your understanding we believe that the book of Revelation is primarily reserved for the future. We don't believe it's been fulfilled in the past. We believe that God made promises to the nation of Israel that He will fulfill literally. We believe that Jesus will reign on the throne of David, as the Old Testament has declared. We do not believe the church is some sort of mystical, spiritual replacement of Israel, as some people teach. Uh, We do believe that Christ will literally and physically return and set up a literal physical kingdom and that the problems created by politics and by wars and rumors of wars and those things in the world today can only be fixed not by the Republican Party or the Tea Party but by King Jesus when He sets up a throne and reigns on the throne promised to Him by His Father, the throne of David. So we look for those things to happen and we believe that the church is a special part of that program. In the church, God has called out Jews and Gentiles alike to be His bride. A peculiar aspect of God's program in which He will be glorified in all of the earth. And we're living right now in the church age, that time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His coming to set up a kingdom. And we as a church are looking for His coming for His bride to deliver her from the days of wrath and to take us home to be with him to rule and reign with him forever at which time we will come with him those born again in Jesus Christ when he comes with his saints to set up a kingdom so we believe these things we think these things flow from a plain sense reading of the text and uh... as paul exhorted the thessalonian church we as christians are waiting for god's son from heaven to deliver us from the wrath of come, to come. We're looking for the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Seeing that as an integral, and important part of the gospel. Not something to be neglected because it's claimed it cannot be understood. But as an integral fulfillment of everything that Christ began when He was in eternity past. Began to initiate when He was born in Bethlehem. Brought toward fruition on the cross of Calvary and from that empty tomb continues to do today through the witness of the Holy Spirit and will culminate in His coming. So that's kind of the backdrop of our study here. Um, we believe that the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel go hand in hand and that one cannot be properly understood without the other. So it behooves you, if you're going to study the book of Revelation, to study the book of Daniel. Okay? Right now we're in the part of Revelation that deals with the messages or Christ's messages to the seven churches. It's real easy to understand how the book breaks down because Jesus Christ Himself gives the outline in chapter 1. This is just review for all of you guys. He gives us an outline. He tells John to write down three things. The things he has seen, the things which are, and the things which will be hereafter. So John is told to write down three things. Things in the past... And passed from that context was the vision he had seen of Christ, not as a lowly weakling hanging on the cross as consistently portrayed by man-made religion or Catholicism, but as a victorious king prepared to rule and reign in righteousness. That vision in chapter 1. Then he's told to write down the things which are present tense. And we see that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches. That's where we are now. And then John is told to write the things which shall be hereafter. Hereafter what? Hereafter the message to the seven churches, the church age. Things that are future. That begins in chapter 4 and continues to the end of the book. So right now we're in the heart of chapters 2 and 3, the church age. These messages to the seven churches, I've said them before, were not only local, actual, historical churches in John's day which they were. They existed. All of them were in Asia Minor which is the modern-day country of Turkey. And they were all within John's realm of pastoral influence toward the end of his life. John lived to be an old man and this book was probably written toward the end of the first century. And all of these churches were nearby. They were actual churches in John's day but more than that they are examples of the types of churches that exist at all times and in all places throughout the church age. If you read these letters you'll see, maybe perhaps be reminded of churches that fit these descriptions. Each of them had their own problems. Of these seven churches, five of them are given condemnations from the Lord concerning their behavior and their beliefs and their actions. In two letters, there are no condemnations. There's only praise. In a couple of the letters, there are no commendations. There is no praise. Christ has nothing positive to say. But so, because these are types of churches, we can learn from them and ask ourselves, is Christ speaking to us as a church body, as an individual or as a church body? But more than that, the book of Revelation is prophetic is prophetic and because we live on this side of the church age looking back over two thousand years of history we can see that these messages are more than just churches in John's day they're more than just types of churches we see all the time they are a prophetic foreview of all of church history beginning with Pentecost and culminating with the rapture of the church which is clearly taught in scripture it's not something that was made up in the 19th century by a blind girl that had a dream. That's what people try to say and that's profound ignorance. Uh, You just go read some of the earliest church fathers that suffered in the generation after John the Apostle and they were waiting for the coming of Christ for his church. It's written very clearly. But anyway this is a prophetic foreview that we can trace down through the centuries and the Sardis church which we are talking about today is the period of the Protestant Reformation. AD 1500 to about AD 1750. The first letter is the church at Ephesus. If I hadn't been gone for seven weeks I wouldn't be doing this review. The church at Ephesus, the backsliding church, was the first century church. The church born at Pentecost. First and second generation Christians culminating in John's, the end of John's life, AD 100. Okay, The apostolic church. Then you've got the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. You can go back and see how the church in the Roman Empire suffered from AD 100 to about AD 312, Constantine's Edict of Milan. And Paul, Jesus talks about an intense 10 day period of persecution that would come upon the church at Smyrna. It's very interesting that from about AD 302 to AD 312, one of the most intense 10 year persecutions of the church in all of history took place. It began with the emperor Diocletian and ended with Constantine. So you even see this revealed a day in prophetic terms is a year uh, all throughout the Old Testament. So it's amazing to see these things fulfilled. The Pergamus church, the worldly or the tolerant church began, began when the New Testament churches married with the world in the Roman Empire and Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. That started with Constantine and went all the way up until about AD 600 when the Pope or the bishop of Rome was proclaimed to be the universal emperor and bishop of the church. The tolerant church that tolerated paganism and brought it into the church. Then you've got the church at Thyatira, which was the ecclesiastical monster in the Middle Ages known as the Roman Catholic Church, butchered more than 50 million Bible-believing Christians, many of them simply because they possessed a copy of God's Word, because they translated it or copied it, or because they practiced biblical believers baptism, an ecclesiastical monster, an unrepentant church. And then we're in the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis began with the Protestant Reformation, in which men, well-known men, stood up against the false teachings and paganism of Rome. We owe a lot to the reformers for their boldness and for the things they did to ensure that the scriptures were copied into the languages of the people and preserved and traveled all over Europe and as a result our men and women fled those shores. They fled the state churches and came to America and established this country. And God wrought great revival down through the years as a result of biblical preaching that, that resurrected itself in the Reformation. But Sardis, the Reformation church here in Revelation 3, was called a dead church. It had a name that it was alive, but Christ saw it as dead. And if you go back and study the history of the Protestant Reformation, what began as alive died because of unfulfilled commitment. Jesus Christ says here in Revelation chapter 3 that I have not found thy works perfect before God. Perfect means complete, finished, accomplished. The job that Christ gave the Protestant churches of that Reformation period was never fulfilled. You see, Paul exhorted the church at Thessalonica and commended them for turning from God to idols. Which the Reform, I mean, turning from idols unto God, excuse me, which the Protestant reformers did. But he also commended the Thessalonians for their vigilance, for waiting for God's Son from heaven. Something the reformers quickly forgot about. They quickly forgot about the more important issue of Christ coming in His kingdom and began to get involved in politics and try to win the political favor of the European nation-states. And as a result, what began as vibrant became a lifeless, dead thing. And that's even seen today in some of the spiritual descendants of the Protestant churches that have gone right back to the doctrine of their Catholic mother. That's evident even today. Now, my background, my spiritual background as a Christian is Baptist. There is no security in denominations. uh, Denominations do mean something. Um, what's most important is that we be born again, and people that have a biblical theology have been called by many names throughout the centuries. Uh, So that's really not important, but historically speaking, Baptists were never Protestants. Baptists and Baptist churches reaped the fruit of the Protestant Reformation, but we've never practiced infant baptism, historically speaking. Historically speaking, Baptists haven't Denied a literal reign of Jesus Christ in the future. They haven't denied that God would fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel as laid out in the Old Testament. Um, they've historically believed that the Bible is the Word of God and they've been zealous in the work of missions and evangelism. So I'm thankful for that heritage. But we Baptists do owe a lot to the Reformers. When we in history became weak and tired, Tired of fighting, tired of the persecution, the Reformers stood up against the church at Rome. And I'm thankful for that. But we need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake that the Reformation church made. Failing to fulfill the commitments that God has given us, not only as individuals, but as a church in general. So let's go back to the text this morning. I'll just read verse 1. I only got through verse 2 last time. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis... Right, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Okay, Sardis had a name that it lived, a name amongst men, a name amongst the people of this world that it was alive. Historically speaking, that can be said of the Protestant Reformation, it had a name amongst the political entities of Europe that time that sought to break away from the power of the Catholic Church that it was alive. But Christ saw the road it tread down as spiritual deadness. We must pause and ask ourselves, do we look alive? Do we look vibrant? Do we look sold out for the gospel to the world, to our fellow our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but yet God sees what we're doing as dead. That's possible. It's very possible that a ministry could be vibrant and zealous and alive in the eyes of the world of the church, but to Christ it could be dead. That's possible because that's what was with the church today. A sense of horror comes over me as I consider could that be me? It's very possible. God forbid. So, this is what he tells the dead church. Verse 2 Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now, we got through this verse last time. Paul, I mean, uh, Jesus is telling the Sardis church, You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And then the Lord himself gives counsel to the church. And I think that counsel can speak to us today. It's a fivefold counsel. The first thing He tells them is to watch. And we talked about that last time, that we are called to vigilance as Christians. Vigilance is inextricably tied to prayer. It's inextricably tied to preaching the Gospel. It's inextricably tied to waiting and looking for the coming of the Lord. And it's inextricably tied to an awareness of the times. We are called to be vigilant. And then Christ tells the church at Sardis to strengthen... The things which remain. Now there is no commendation from the Lord in this message outright. But he does acknowledge that Sardis, the church in John's day, the type of church that's being spoken to now, and the church of the Protestant Reformation in general, had some things that were good. Because he told them to strengthen the things that <coughs> remain. There were things that remained in the testimony of this church that needed to be strengthened. Now Christ doesn't tell them what these things are. I think that's because the answer is obvious. The answer is obvious. This church was given a commission by God and it didn't fulfill it. And the only way to strengthen what remains is to do what you committed to do. It's the same thing Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. They had talked about gathering an offering together for some poor saints. They had talked about it. They had a willingness to be a part of that ministry But a year or so went by and they never did anything about it. And then Paul rebuked them with the example of the poverty-stricken churches from Macedonia and Achaia and said, look, these people were poor. And the poorer they got, the more they gave. And here you are with a willingness to do the ministry but not the commitment to actually do it. That's what's being rebuked here with the church at Sardis. We talked about how we as Christians are to strengthen the things in our lives that remain You know, we need that spiritual sword which is the Word of God. But we also need that spiritual trowel to fortify the things in our lives that remain steadfast. Lest they be lost or lest they be trampled upon in these dark days. The only way we can strengthen ourselves, the only way Sardis could strengthen itself is in Christ. Christ is the source of strength. Not the man himself, not the church itself. He's the source of boldness to share the gospel. He's the source of integrity in our lives. When we rely on ourselves or a man-made entity for these things, it's a house built on sand. So now we've come to verse 3, and that's really where I want to start today. You've got two things against you this morning, folks. I'm a street preacher, which means I normally preach in a context where there's no time limit. And a lot of people are passing by, so I can preach as long as I want to. So that's what I'm used to doing. And then secondly, I've spent a lot of time with brethren around the world in churches outside of America where time is no issue. The Lord's Day is the Lord's Day. And there's no getting out at 12 o'clock to get to the buffet line. When Christians come to church in some of these foreign countries, they're excited to be with their brethren. And they're going to stay around all day. Ricky and I had the privilege of worshiping with some brethren down in Peru a few weeks ago in Lima and it's kind of interesting, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a pretty well-known preacher today, Paul Washer, he preaches some pretty convicting stuff his messages have been a blessing to me particularly with regard to missions and evangelism and some other things just a great humble man, a preacher that was a missionary in Peru for many years and this was actually a church that he had been involved in helping to plant so there were some really solid brethren down there, doctrinally speaking And we went and sat with them and and they just it just went on and on and on and on. Ricky and I went through about three or four mates before the service was over with. And so, hey, it was no big deal. Why are we so time-oriented? So you got two things against you this morning if you got somewhere to go. But um, we want to just see what the Lord does. We move at His pace here. I don't know how far I'll get. But look at verse 3. Christ has commanded the church at Sardis the path to reawakening from spiritual deadness was to watch... And to strengthen. But that's not all. Look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. So the fivefold counsel of the Lord to the dead church was this watch, strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. Guys, we need to write that on our heart. We need to write that on our forehead, spiritually speaking. At all times, watching, strengthening, remembering, holding fast, and repenting. Are these Do these things characterize our lives as Christians? The proof that I repented long ago and put my trust in Christ isn't that I repeated a prayer after a pastor. It's that my life is one of repentance and watching and remembering and vigilance and things today. Not perfectly. No way. But those things ought to characterize my life if I'm truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember. The church at Ephesus was told to remember by Jesus. Ephesus, the backsliding church that left its first love, was told, remember from where you have fallen. If you're backsliding in your walk with Christ, you need to remember where you came from. But Sardis is, is not told to remember where it had, from where it had fallen. It's told to remember what it received and heard. Folks, we need to be constantly remembering what we have received in terms of the gospel. And what we have heard from those that God has appointed over us to teach us and to disciple us. Not only the words of Jesus Christ and the apostles in the New Testament, but those God has ordained to lead us in the church. I'm not a leader in this particular church. I'm not an elder, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon. I'm just a guest preacher. So I'm not talking about myself here. I'm a nobody. But we need to remember what we've seen and heard. I think of the Protestant Reformation and what God did beginning October 31st, 1517 when Martin Luther very boldly nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. I don't know if you've ever read the 95 Theses. I've got a copy of it on my iPhone. I love Luther because his language is really blunt and he doesn't mince words. And he was kind of an enigmatic fellow. And he took a bold step when he nailed those theses. But if you read those theses, he still had some big theological Catholic problems on October 31st, 1517. But as time went by, A lot of that got straightened out and God used him more than anything else to translate the Bible into the German language for the German people. And they still use Luther's Bible today. A Reformation text that didn't come from the corrupt Latin Vulgate, but from old manuscripts and things that had been preserved by persecuted Christians. God used Luther to give the German people the Word of God in their language. Praise God for that. But that was a bold step. And I think about how the Reformation was founded upon the idea, it's a Latin phrase, sola scriptura, which means only the Scriptures. In other words, the Bible is the authority, not some council or some pope in Rome. The Bible, it was founded on that foundation. The Gospel, preaching the Gospel, taking it, copying the Word of God, preserving it, getting it into the hands of the people, that was... A foundational principle of the Protestant Reformation. The idea of liberty of conscience. Let men follow God according to their conscience. Away with the state churches and the laws that persecute people for their theology. Those things are what initiated the Protestant Reformation. But the Reformation churches failed to remember these things. Because as time went by and the Reformation, men like Zwingli and even Calvin to a certain extent needed the political backing of the European nation-states. These things were forgotten. And tradition started to become as important as Scripture. Things were added to the Gospel that weren't there. And then liberty of conscience was flushed down the toilet. In Calvin's Geneva... If your skirt wasn't exactly long enough, you were banished to the wilderness. There was a man burned at the stake for having an unbiblical doctrine. Where are we commissioned in the New Testament to kill people if their doctrine's not right? That stuff bled with the Protestant churches even over into early America, my friends. Are you aware that in America's history, a preacher or a Christian has never been put to death for their beliefs. Never happened in American history. It's going to happen. Trust me, it's coming. But it hasn't happened. There were Baptist preachers though that were put in prison in Virginia, Massachusetts, and other places because they were preaching on the streets without a license. Because they practiced believer's baptism as an outward symbol of an inward change. That's documented in history. There was one preacher who was preaching in Massachusetts Bay, a Puritan Protestant colony. And he was banished to the wilderness to die because he refused to go through, to obtain a license that he didn't believe the Bible required of believers to share the gospel. He was banished to the wilderness, he befriended the Indians in a place called Narragansett Bay, modern-day Rhode Island. And as a result of that friendship, the state of Rhode Island was born. And Rhode Island became the first place on this side of the ocean in which men were free to believe or to reject God according to their conscience. And you see, our founding fathers here in America understood that in a nation where men were free to believe or to reject was a society in which the gospel would best thrive. Go read the words of Patrick Henry. Go read the dialogue between the Baptist preacher John Leland and James Madison. Or the letter that the Virginia Baptist wrote to Thomas Jefferson. And you'll see these things to be so. That's why freedom of conscience is so important in our society. I can't stand the foul doctrines that the atheists preach, that the Muslims try to preach here in America, but God forbid they lose their right to do it, because the day they lose their right to do it, in this country dictates a man's thoughts, is today is the day that the word of God is shackled. Preach the gospel, let God deal with men's hearts. That was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation and these things were lost over time. Some churches that are spiritual descendants going straight back to the Reformers are some of the deadest places you can visit in America today. I've been all over the Dakotas and Reformed churches are big out there. And you want to talk about deadness. That word Reformed is used a lot today and it has a lot of different connotations and I don't really know what it means when people use it so I'm not speaking of that term in general. But churches that are direct descendants, I've been there. Deadness. We need to remember where we came from. If you came to Christ and you had a zeal for Him in those, those early days, if you had a zeal for the Gospel to be fed by the Word, but you've grown cold and you've become routine, you need to remember what you saw and heard and go back to that. That's what Christ is commissioning the church here. Now it's interesting... That God used the Protestant Reformation to break the demonic chains of the ecclesiastical uh, monster in Europe, which was Rome. And as a result, the gospel began to go to places it had never gone before. But then the churches became dead. So when you come to the 18th and 19th centuries, what did God do? When the churches were dead, He sent revival. Revival. He sent revival. And most of the great revival preachers of the 18th and 19th century were Protestant preachers who began to take a stand against this deadness and as a result, they were kicked out of their churches. George Whitfield's a prime example of that. He was kicked out of the churches over in England, wasn't allowed to preach there. Somebody asked him about it one time and he said, well, bless God, I can't preach in the churches, but the fields are open. And he traveled up and down the colonies in early America preaching the gospel and people would come out by the thousands to hear this street preacher. And great revival came. The first great awakening in American history prior to the American Revolution. The second great awakening in the early 1800's. The third great awakening that never gets talked about during the period of Civil War. When God brought revival. And the proof of genuine revival isn't a whole bunch of dancing and emotion and singing and crying. The proof of genuine revival is that souls are saved and that churches are planted. And what I find interesting is that these Protestant preacher rejects who took to the street and were used by God, men like Edwards and the Wesley Brothers and Whitfield and others, countless names, some in England, some in the United States, when they went to preaching and God got to bring in revival, what type of churches were born out of that? Dead Protestant ones? No. Most of them were Baptistic churches that spread all over this country. Sad thing today is a lot of Baptistic churches have gotten dead just like the Protestant churches did after the Reformation. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? We need to remember what we have received and heard. So enough about the Protestant Reformation. Enough about Sardis. Let's pause for a minute. If the church at Sardis is commissioned to remember, then we're commissioned to remember. These things are written for us as Christians. Everything in the Bible, the Old Testament included, is written for our admonition. Paul says that in Romans. So everything is useful here. Okay, What should we remember as Christians? What do we need to remember? Well, the New Testament tells us several things we need to remember. I'd like for someone to look up 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. We usually get people to read and interact a little bit this morning. Had an issue a while back, you know, someone was very uncomfortable that I would call upon a woman to read from the Scriptures. Look, when the Bible talks about women being silent in the church, the context there is teaching or having authority over men in terms of teaching. And prophesying or speaking in tongues. So asking a lady to read from the scriptures is not a violation of the scriptures. Okay? I'm just gonna be clear with that. I don't see it that way. So um, um, we do tend to ask people to read just so we can interact a little bit. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, and then somebody look up Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Jude verse 17, Hebrews 13:3. In Hebrews 13, 7. Okay? What are we to remember as Christians? 2 Timothy 2, 8. Read loud, okay? Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead what is that something Jesus did right we are to remember the things that Jesus did Paul is exhorting the Roman I mean exhorting the uh, Timothy to remember that Jesus was raised from the dead we need to constantly remember what Jesus did not just what he said everybody today wants to remember what he said judge not that you be not judged We need to remember what He did. He purchased our redemption on the cross and then rose from the dead and then prophesied that He would come again and commissioned us to go and share the Gospel as He demonstrated for us during His three years of active obedience. That active obedience to the law and perfection is an integral part of the Gospel, my friends. He didn't just live and die. He lived a perfect life and demonstrated it through His works. So in a way, you could say... That salvation is through works. It's through the works of Jesus Christ, not our works. So we need to remember what He did. Salvation is by grace through faith through the works of Christ. Amen. Acts 20.35 35. I've shown you all things, how they're so laboring enough you know, to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He said, Not only are we to remember what Jesus did, we're to remember what He said. What's interesting here is Paul is not quoting from one of the four Gospels. If you read the end of the book of John, John is very clear that I have not recorded all the things that Jesus said and did. If I were to do that, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. So here Paul is actually recording something that Jesus said which is not found in the four Gospels. You know, there's a lot of things Jesus said. I'm not talking about the garbage called the Gospel of Thomas or the Epistle of Barnabas, that garbage that was written in about the 3rd or 4th century A.D. by Gnostics that everybody claims is the Word of God. It can't be because it contradicts the Scriptures time and time again. But there were things Jesus said and did that would not contradict a single word in the Gospels, and one of those was, it is more blessed to give than receive. That, That certainly is in agreement with what's been recorded in the Gospels. But we need to remember not only what He did, but what He said. Not what he said in a few isolated places taken out of context. Matthew 7.1 is taken out of context more than any other passage of Scripture. Judge not that you be not judged. It's the favorite passage of the reprobate who hates God. You know, I can go preach about Jesus and His love and God's love on the cross and never mention a word about hell and I'll be accused of judging on the street. Well, the fact is we are to judge. Not hypocritical judgment that's talked about there in Matthew 7. In other words, applying a standard to someone different from the standard that we would apply to ourselves. That's hypocritical judgment. But Jesus told us to judge righteously in John chapter 7, verse 24. He told us to judge not according to the appearance. We need to remember the things He did and the things He said. Now, some would say, well, I just believe the red letters in the Bible. You know. What Paul had to say or Peter, they're not important. But if you understand who Jesus Christ is and what the Word is, then you'll understand that everything written in this book is what Christ said because it's His Word. Men were just pins in His hand. It says there in the book of Peter that the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is what Jesus didn't say. It It has to be the authority. Praise God for the Reformers who preached that this was the authority in those early days of the Reformation. Praise God for that. Jude 17, what else do we need to remember? remember not only the words of Christ but the words of the apostles. Friends, the apostles spoke for Jesus Christ. He told them that when the Spirit came and indwelt them at Pentecost, He promised them that the Spirit would bring to their remembrance everything they had seen and heard. He promised them that He would speak through them. And so the words of the apostles as recorded in the New Testament, Peter and Paul and Luke and John and others, are just as authoritative as the red letters in the Gospel. We are commissioned to remember the words of the apostles. To remember, because their words never disagree with Christ. It's all one. We need to remember. So how can we remember these things if we don't study the Word of God? How can we? Hebrews 13.3, there's something else we need to remember. We need to remember those who are persecuted for the gospel. Not only those in history, because we can learn from their example, but those suffering today. I was moved to conviction by a brother we labored with down in Peru. He did some translation for us, just a humble brother, who would preach and translate faithfully and he wasn't ashamed to do it on the streets. And when we would pray before we would go out to preach, he would always pray for two things that I often fail to even think about. He would pray for those Christians who are suffering persecution around the world, that God would strengthen them and help them to be bold. And then he would pray for those who are hungry, the Christians that are hungry and suffering the loss of things, that God would provide for them and fill their bellies and give them what they need. Every single time he would pray for that. And I was convicted. How often do we think of our brethren in that fashion? We're told to remember them. Those who have suffered for the gospel. There's many who have suffered from the gospel in history, but we never take enough time to study that. Church history can be is, is the second greatest, or history in general is the second greatest lesson book outside the Bible. It shows us the divine hand of providence and it shows us that man will utterly fail. It doesn't matter what situation he's in. And that the only explanation for the survival of the church or the survival for the people of Israel is the preservation of God. In His mighty hand, we need to remember those in the past and today. Hebrews 13, 7, what else do we need to remember? Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the Word of God, whose faith followed considering the end of their conversation. We need to remember those that God has used to disciple us. Remember those that God has put in our lives to teach us the Word of God. Remember those. I get so disheartened when I travel to foreign countries and I see how often the church looks toward America as a source of truth. And as a result, false doctrine is spread all over Africa. It's spread all over the place. Because people just think America's a Christian nation. If it comes out of America, it must be right. All the time, these folks are not remembering or heeding the leaders and those that God has put in their their own lives to teach them and disciple them. Everybody's got to get the latest book. Everybody's got to get the latest, uh, you know. Go read the, see the latest YouTube video, and this is all. Everybody's got their own, you know, this or that, and and theology swings back and forth according to the latest video. No, we need to remember those who have spoken the word of God to us. That God is used to disciple us and bring us to a, a closer walk with Him. That should be. Your pastor or your elders, if they're faithfully carrying out the ministry, they ought to be people you want to emulate, people you want to follow and remember. It ought to be your closest brothers in Christ. Are your closest friends, Christian, your brethren in Christ? Or is it the lost world? Is church just something you do on Sunday to check it off your list or do you covet that fellowship with what should be your closest friends, those who God has used to teach you, to disciple you. These are the things we need to remember. And because these things are commissioned throughout the New Testament, undoubtedly this is what Christ was referring to when He told the church at Sardis to remember the things it had seen and heard. The only way we can remember is to constantly have it before our face. The only way I can remember how to preach the gospel in the Pali or Spanish languages that I've learned, I have constantly have to have it before my face. What Jesus said, what he did, the words of the apostles, those who are suffering for the gospel, those who speak to us the word of God. Remember these things. You've often heard it said. I'm kind of a student of history, I love history. I'm kind of enamored with the Roman Empire right now. I'm reading a book that was written in 1792. It's a classic on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, an Englishman. It's like six or seven volumes. And I've often talked about how much I despise reading a book on an electronic screen, be it an iPad, a Kindle, or, or or iPhone. It just it's not like the printed page. So I challenge myself. I'm trying to read all six volumes of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire on my iPhone. Okay, I, I read volume one in South America, and I'm in the volume two right now. An old work. It's not easy reading. But I'm kind of fascinated with that period in history, particularly how God used His Word in in, in the Christians that suffered. Not Roman Catholics, but Christians who were persecuted as the Catholic Church began to take shape in ancient Rome. But those, you've often heard it said, those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. You've heard that, right? There are many things. It's funny how cyclical history is. And if you study the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, it's a mirror image of what we are seeing today in the United States. And guess what, friends? Daniel the prophet prophesied four great Gentile world kingdoms and four only between his day and the coming of Christ. Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. Rome was that fourth great kingdom, that kingdom of iron with that fierce beast with teeth that stamped everything out. The legs and the feet and toes of Daniel's statue in chapter 2. Guys, the Roman Empire has never ceased to exist. The nation states of Europe, the United States today, we are the descendants of the Roman provinces that became the seat of the Empire from the days of Constantine on. We're the descendants of that. Genealogically sociologically, culturally, and politically. So the Roman Empire has never ceased to exist. And that fourth great Gentile world kingdom is in existence today. And I believe that the United States and Western Europe will play a part in that kingdom of the beast that Christ will crush when He returns, as is recorded in Revelation 19. But it's amazing to see how the US today is exactly like the Roman Empire in its days of decline. In the decline of morality, in the loss of authority in the government, in the distractions from things that ought to concern people economically and politically. It's amazing to see that. But those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, and we're repeating it today in America, but for the Sardis church or for the Bible-believing Christian, it's a little bit different. We're not the world. I would say that where the Christian is concerned, those that don't know their history or their spiritual history may be doomed not to repeat it. Friends, we want to repeat the history of those that took a bold stand for the gospel. We want to repeat the history of those bold reformers that took a stand. Men like, in some ways, men like Luther and Calvin and and others and Tyndale and Coverdale and Thomas Matthews and others that took a bold stand and were used by God. We need to remember that and emulate it. We need to remember those Christians that suffered and fled persecution and brought the gospel to this nation and established this nation that the gospel could then go forth to the ends of the world as a result of the missionaries. We need to remember that. We need to remember their example, their sufferings, the sufferings of believers today. I look forward in a couple of months. Brother James from Bangladesh is going to be visiting here. He's going to be sharing here a couple times at the church. And then Ricky and I are going to be traveling with him around America preaching the gospel. James is a brother from a country, Bangladesh, where he suffered for the gospel. A closed country. A country in which I've been told I was under arrest for preaching the gospel, but I fled and escaped. A country where Ricky and I were chased by a mob just for handing out tracts. So this brother knows suffering. And there's some things he'll be able to teach us. We need to hear that so that we can repeat his history if we're called to do so. Hebrews chapter 12 immediately follows a chapter in which the writer, who I believe was Paul, exhorts us to remember the great men and women of faith in the Old Testament. He's looking back on our spiritual forefathers, men and women of faith. And then he says in, verse, in chapter 12, after he has shared with us all these examples from our spiritual history, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Friends, our spiritual history ought to be a spiritual energy shop. Spiritual caffeine that brings us closer to Christ. Paul says here that we're compassed by these witnesses that ought to compel us to lay aside the sin besetting us and to strive and to look to Christ the author and finisher of our faith. How can we not remember those that have gone before? You see, that's where the Protestant Reformation failed in one It didn't fail because God doesn't fail when He does anything. But that's why it petered out. Because the descendants of those that were bold to preach the truth failed to remember where they came from. And we see that today. Christ counseled to the church. He's told them to watch, to strengthen, to remember. And then right here later in the verse... See, we don't move very fast here in the book of Revelation. I don't know how in the world we're ever going to get done. I think Christ will come back before we even get close, probably. But there's so much here. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. So we don't just need to do some exercises with our mind. We need to remember and grasp it. Hold fast. This term here in the original language is very similar to what Paul used in Romans 1 when he described those who know God, because God's revealed Himself on the conscience. They know God because of His witness in creation, yet they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it. The atheist suppresses the truth. Okay? He suppresses the truth. In an opposite fashion, we're to take the truth and hold fast to it. Not pressing it away, but grasping it to ourselves, just like we would grasp a parachute in a downing plane, Just like we would hold on to our child if a tornado was cutting through our house. We're to remember these things and hold them fast. Not like Israel of old, or many in the churches today. Look at Jeremiah chapter 8 for a minute. It's amazing how the state of the church today is a lot like Israel of old. Listen to what he says here in chapter 8, verses 5-7. through Jeremiah chapter 8, the prophet is writing to the people of Jerusalem. Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? Look at the churches today, is there not a perpetual backsliding in this country? They hold fast deceit. They're not holding fast the things that they knew from their history Israel here. They're holding fast seat. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Isn't that a description of the church today? everybody It's like Israel in the days of the judges. There was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I saw that up in Asheville at Share last weekend. I see that in the churches and some of the garbage that's put on YouTube and some of the books that are bestsellers in the Christian bookstores. Everyone turns to his own course. That's the opposite of what Christ is commanding the church at Sardis to do. It's the opposite. Now, there's kind of an interesting side note um, here. If you look, um, let me see here. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Sorry. Holding fast deceit versus holding fast what Christ is commanding the church at Sardis. Somebody look up 1 Thessalonians 5.21. 2 Timothy 1.13. Titus 1. 1.9. Hebrews 3.6. Hebrews Hebrews 10.23. In Revelation 2.25, not only do the Scriptures tell us specific things to remember, they tell the church specific things to hold fast. So as Sardis is commissioned to remember and hold fast, so are we. So we've talked about what we need to remember. What is it we need to hold fast? 1 Thessalonians 5.21. It's real simple, real short. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Amen. Prove all things. Test all things with the Word of God. Hold fast that which is good. Even think on these things. Philippians tells us to think on that which is pure and holy and of good rapport and righteous. How often have I been distracted by the things of this world? Depression, discouragement with this fall life leads me to think on the opposite of those things. When the cure to that depression isn't those things, it's the things that are good. Hold fast that which is good. In this society, when everything's barreling toward moral decadence, we need to hold fast that which is good. 2 Timothy 1.13 and Titus 1.9 pretty much say the same thing. Somebody read that. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Titus 1.9. hold fast that which is good hold fast sound doctrine we need to hold fast sound biblical doctrine not doctrine that sways back and forth like a pendulum in a grandfather clock not the latest craze or the latest interpretation that has never been held by Christians in all of church history we need to hold fast sound doctrine the idea that salvation is repeating a prayer after a preacher and then just doing your own thing as if you got a flu shot, that's not sound doctrine. The idea that man is the author of salvation, that's not sound doctrine. God's the author of salvation. The idea that the Bible, that, that, that Jesus would say or do something that goes against the Bible, that's not sound doctrine. The idea that God is love and love is God, that isn't sound doctrine. And the idea that biblical love means just agreeing with everybody and ignoring the truth, that's not sound doctrine. Those are the latest crazes and the latest fads in the church today, but it's not sound doctrine. We need to hold fast to sound biblical doctrine. Hebrews 3.6 What Christ has son of his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast and and rejoicing. Holding fast the confidence of the hope that we have in that context, that's a reference to Christ coming in Christ's kingdom. We need to hold fast the hope of Christ' coming in his kingdom. and not forget that. If we hold those things fast, we won't be discouraged when we look at the news. We won't be discouraged into uselessness when we see where America's going. The Bible says in Proverbs, that I think it's in Proverbs or Psalms, I can't remember, that a righteous man is not afraid when he hears evil tidings. His hope is in the Lord. We need to hold fast the hope in Christ's kingdom and that justice will be served and that all that is wrong will be made right. Not by our hands or with our swords, but with Christ and His righteous coming. We need to hold fast. Hebrews 10.23 Amen. Hold fast the profession of our faith. When you came to Jesus Christ and professed your faith in Him, you need to hold fast to that moment, my friend. In times of life when all is dark, all is dark and discouraging and depressing, maybe that's the only thing you'll have to fall back on. And when it is, it's a glorious thing. There have been dark periods in my life when all I had... Was Jesus Christ and His salvation. And I couldn't deny that. No way could I walk right away from it. It was all I had. And to hold fast to that profession was like clinging to a piece of board or a piece of plank, like the men did when Paul's ship was shipwrecked off that island in the Mediterranean. Some of them just grasped onto the planks and the remains the pieces of the ship and eventually floated to shore. We need to hold fast to the profession of our faith. And in Revelation 2.25, this goes back to the Thyatira church. What do we need to hold fast? But that which you have already, hold fast to I come. Hold fast what we have already. You may be struggling in your Christian walk. You may be battling things. You may be battling despair, sin that so easily besets you. But if Christ lives in your life and the Holy Spirit's in there... There are things you have already, and you need to hold fast to those things. They are the key to victory over the sin that does so easily beset us. So we know what to hold fast to. We know what to remember. The last thing that Christ tells the church, not just to watch, to strengthen, to remember, to hold fast, but He says to repent. Repent is one of the strongest words, not only in the English language, but I found it to be a very strong word in the Nepali language based on the reaction of people you say it to. And it's a very strong word in the Spanish language uh, based on the reaction people have when you say it. I know this for a fact. Ask Ricky. He knows too. Um, repent. It's an old word. It's a good word. It's what we're commanded to do. Jesus said in Luke 13, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So a gospel without repentance is no gospel at all. What is repentance? What, are we, what is the church here commanded to do? Five of the seven churches here in Revelation 2 and 3 are commanded to repent by Christ. Which churches are not commanded to repent? Anybody know? In fact, they're not condemned by Christ at all. Two of them. Philadelphia. We haven't studied them yet. That's the church of the great spiritual awakenings in history. And then what else? Smyrna. The suffering church. The persecuted church. There are a lot of Smyrna and Philadelphia churches today for whom Christ would have no rebuke. I believe that. I don't claim that to be me, and I don't claim that to be us. I think we need to search the Scriptures and be ready to repent. But in order to understand what this word means, and I'm going to kind of wrap up here today. Man, I'm not even to get close to being finished. It's like each church gets more parts. Ephesus messages on the audio is part one and part two. And then they start getting part 1, part 2, part 3. I think we may... We're going to get a part 4 like Thyatira, but uh, man, a part 5, that's, I, it can't be. It can't be. We can't let that happen. We're never going to get through this book. So Let's turn to Jeremiah again, chapter 3. Here we have a really good definition. And if you're, if you're sharing your faith and you're doing the work of evangelism and you're preaching repentance, whether it's to your neighbor, your coworker, or maybe in a, in a street preaching scenario... I encourage you, brothers to, and sisters, to look at this chapter because we have one of the clearest definitions of repentance here in the whole Bible. And I've preached this many times when trying to explain to people what repentance is. Jeremiah is preaching against the people of Judah and Israel that have turned against God. And here's what God says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 13. This is the heart of Repentance. Only acknowledge, remember that word, thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. And turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. For I am married unto you and I will take you one of a city and two of a family and I will bring you to Zion. Two words there, acknowledge and turn. Friends, that's the heart of repentance. Whether that's repentance from sin unto salvation In Jesus Christ, or whether it's repentance from sin that so easily besets us in our Christian walk unto a clean relationship with the Lord. That is repentance. Repentance begins with acknowledging our sin. And therein lies the problem. That's the problem with American society today. That's the problem with the church today. There's a refusal to acknowledge our sin. Self-righteousness. People don't want to acknowledge that fornication and adultery is sin. They don't want to acknowledge that homosexuality is perverse and it's a sin against God. They don't want to acknowledge that drunkenness does not bring glory to God. They don't want to acknowledge that uh, the American dream is not the gospel. Repentance is to acknowledge. Sardis needed to acknowledge first that it was dead before it could be raised to life again. Needed to acknowledge it. We need to acknowledge the things in our lives that are hampering our walk with the Lord before they can be fixed. Acknowledge. And then it doesn't end there. Israel's told to acknowledge. If you just acknowledge your sin, and then in verse 14, turn from it. That's repentance. Acknowledgement and turning. If there's things in your lives that would make you like Sardis, acknowledge it. Take it to God. Leave it there and turn from it. It's a simple, simple, simple formula. There's an interesting side note in verse 15. We want to blame the problems with the American church on all the false teachers. That's what we want to blame. And that's not where the blame lies. Look at verse 15. What did God say He would do to them if they would repent? He says, I will give you pastors according to my heart, which will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's interesting because the key to solid teachers in the church is repentance by the church. False teachers are judgment against the church, my friends. You know the people that sit there and lick up all that stuff on TV that claims to be the gospel. They're going to answer for it in the day of judgment. They've been giving given exactly what they want. Teachers that'll scratch, that'll tickle their ears, just like the Bible says. The key to having solid teaching in your church and in your fellowship is to repent. Is for the church to repent because false teachers are judgment from the church. And you read this in the whole context. The false teachers and the false prophets and stuff in Israel's day were judgment from God. And God says, repent, and I'll send you true pastors who will share with you knowledge and understanding and not deceive you. That's an interesting side note. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of repentance to the church at Corinth in terms of judging ourselves. We as Christians, in our relationship with the Lord and as the church, we're given an opportunity to judge ourselves, to escape God's chastisement and His discipline. And the church at Corinth was told to judge itself. Now we know that Paul wasn't preaching to lost people in Corinth because he spoke of the judgment of God when it came to Corinth as preserving that church from ultimate damnation. Preserving it. So we're talking about discipline and judgment against the church, not unto eternal damnation, but unto earthly consequences. And the church is told, judge yourselves. Or, Christ will do it. He'll judge us that we would not be condemned with the world. So, there were people in Corinth that were sick. Some of them were dead because of the things that were going on in that church. Not dead to perish in hell, but dead that they would not be condemned with the world in that context. But Corinth was given a chance to judge itself. So is the church here at Sardis. Jesus is telling the church to repent and He's giving them an opportunity to see what was wrong. He's not even telling them what they needed to remember because it's so obvious. Praise God for that mercy. God's a merciful God. He never sends judgment without warning. He never gives judgment on this earth without ample opportunity to repent. Look at Noah, a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. Man had an opportunity to repent as he does today. God sees all and He waits. And some of us are very frustrated that He won't split the sky and come back and make this right. But He waits because He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. Okay, I'm going to finish up here. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch. Look at the full circle here. Watch, strengthen, remember, hold fast, repent, watch. Right back to watch. Watching is tied to repenting. For us to watch and be vigilant, we have to be a repenting people. There's no way to extricated. You can't be watching for the coming of Christ and be vigilant, ready for Him if you're not living a life of repentance. It's not possible. It's not possible. And this warning is given to Sardis. If you will not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not, not know what hour I will come upon thee. As a thief, sudden unexpected judgment and chastening. I don't believe this is a warning against eternal damnation. Salvation in Christ is secure for those truly born again. It's not a, every mention of judgment in the New Testament isn't talking about eternal damnation in hell, friends. There is judgment and condemnation that comes on disobedient Christians. It's not talking about hell. Somebody read 1 John 2.28 and then we're going to finish today. 1 John 2.28. Look what, what John tells little children... My brothers, my children, the church, Christians. First John, written to Christians, not to the world. First John chapter two, twenty-eight. What does he say? And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Who's he talking to? Little children. Born again Christians are children of God, not just offspring of God. You are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, the book of Galatians. Not all men are children of God. We're separated because of Adam's sin and sin that came in the world. And we're offspring of God, but the only way we can be restored to that relationship as children is by being adopted back into that family through Jesus Christ. I know I'm speaking real fast, but there's good sound doctrine from the book of Galatians. Little children, Christians... Abide in Him. That means do these things. That word abide includes all of these things that have been commissioned to Sardis we've talked about today. Abide in Him so that when He shall appear, when He does come, we'll have confidence and not be ashamed at His coming. That's not talking about eternal damnation. That's talking about embarrassment. Do we want to be embarrassed when we stand before Christ when He comes for His church and the church stands before the judgment seat of Christ for the sake of rewards? That they then turn and throw at His feet as we see in Revelation 4 and 5. Do we want to be embarrassed? Because all that's saved is ourselves and we have nothing to turn and give back to Christ. We don't want to be ashamed at His coming. We don't want Him to come for His church as a thief and we're not ready. Yeah, we may gain eternal life, but we stand embarrassed and ashamed. Nothing to offer for our Lord. That's not something we should desire. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Jesus said. Not for our own good, but that we might use them to bring glory to God. We don't want to be a church that Christ comes upon as a thief. When He does come upon this world as a thief for His church, there are going to be those left behind who never knew Him. Those that played lip service to God and were in church every Sunday morning, they're going to wake up and the true church is going to be gone. And then judgment and wrath is going to fall on this world. And they're going to be left behind. And Then there's going to be those that are going to be taken with the church unto eternal life to rule and reign with Christ, but they're going to stand before that judgment seat ashamed, because they didn't do these things that we were commissioned to do. That's I'm talking to Christians here, not to the lost man. Those, that's not the type. That's not what we don't want that to be our epitaph, right? So we should strive. These things shouldn't make us lazy in works of righteousness because, oh, we're just saved and that's all I care about is a little corner in the cabin in glory. No. If you truly understand what Christ has done for you and the nature of eternity and ruling and reigning with Him, you would be compelled to live for Him that you might have reward to give back to Him and fall at His feet. As we see those saints in Revelation 4, the, 12, the 24 elders, representatives of Israel and representatives of the church, Falling down before him, casting their crowns before the Lamb who is worthy. And I'm going to end with this. I know I keep saying this, but it's I don't I'm not going to get into um, the next verse. Um verse four and five, Christ starts talking to the remnant. There was a remnant at Sardis, a faithful remnant. It was dead as a church as a whole, but God always has a remnant. And the church today may be dead as a whole, but he has a remnant. Sometimes those remnants are individual Christians. Sometimes that faithful remnant is an entire church body. But there is always a remnant. So the idea that everything's gone backwards, I'm just not going to fellowship with believers, I'm just not going to go to church, I'm going to just stay home, that's not an excuse for you because there is a remnant body and you need to find it. You need to be a part of it. And if you can't find it, start it in your home. And Christians come together and fellowship as the Bible commissions us in Hebrews. But if we would actually look at the city of Sardis itself and history... This actual history of the city of Sardis in, in modern day Turkey should have been a warning to the church. And it should be a warning to America today. This city was in a very mountainous region of Turkey. And it was actually um, um, in a valley, the Valley of Hermus, And it was surrounded by high cliffs, deep cliffs. This city was positioned much like, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Quebec. I was amazed when I drove through the Canadian province of Quebec at the city, Quebec City. It's built on a rampart and it's surrounded and protected by cliffs. An amazing place of natural defense. And that's why in the French and Indian War when the British tried to take Quebec City on the plains of Abraham, they failed because of the natural defenses of the sea. I think I got all my facts straight there. I think. I get lost in it sometime. But the city of Sardis was Built in an ideal place for defense. In fact, um, it withstood invasion that saw by, by the great empires many a times that saw other cities and places fall. However, there were two times in the history of Sardis that because of the people's overconfidence and failure to watch, the city was taken. One of these was in 549 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia. If you read Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast, that was Cyrus and the Persians that snuck into the city at night, actually rerouted the Euphrates River to conquer the mighty empire of Babylon. It was prophesied before it even happened, 538 B.C. But in 549 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia ended the rule of the Lydian king, in Sardis by having his army secretly scale the cliffs under cover of darkness. And the Lydians were so confident in their defense they weren't even watching. So when the Persians were upon them, there was no defense and the city fell. Cyrus the Persian is interesting because he's actually mentioned by name twice in the book of Isaiah more than a hundred and twenty years before his birth. He was mentioned as one that God would use to allow Israel to return to the land even before God had kicked him out of the land. Mm -hmm. Mentioned by name. And people want to say the Bible is just a book written by men. I don't see that kind of prophecy in the Quran. I certainly don't see it in the Vedas, in the Bhagavad Vita of the Hindu writings. Cyrus mentioned by name. The Bible mentions Josiah, the king of Israel, by name 300 years before his birth. That's older than our country. And this is just a a man-made book? Come on. Fulfilled prophecy is the greatest proof that the Bible is a word of God. But the city fell in 549 BC because it failed to watch or to be vigilant. In 214 BC, Antiochus the Great did the same thing. It did the exact same thing. The people didn't learn from their history, and the city fell again because it failed to watch. The spiritual history of the Sardis church corresponded to the political history of that city, my friends. It corresponded. It failed to watch. It failed to remember those things upon which it was built. And then it, it fell. It stumbled into spiritual deadness. We cannot let that be our epitaph. It is the epitaph of America, politically speaking. It's coming. In fact, I preached this passage when I was in Asheville last weekend. I'm going to end with this the book of Obadiah, a little one chapter book in the Old Testament. There's a few one chapter books. In the Bible. And so there is no chapter. So you don't say Obadiah 1 verse 8 or 1 verse 3. You say Obadiah 3. You say Jude 17. You say 3 John 1. Because there is no, there's only one chapter. And so Obadiah is one of those books. And it is written to the nation of Edom. Edom was a privileged nation that knew God. They were descended from Esau, uh, one of Isaac's children. And because of their Genealogical relationship to Isaac and Abraham, they were blessed, but they had failed to be vigilant. They had been cruel to the people of Israel. Their descent, their, 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 I mean, their, uh, their family, uh, genealogically speaking, they had been cruel. They were prideful. They were built in the rocks and cliffs of modern day Jordan, with secure cities like Petra that they thought could never be conquered. They dwelt in pride, much like America today. Edom was a nation blessed by God in many ways, just like America is today. But they became prideful and they forgot God. And look what God says to them in verse 3, and He's saying this to America today. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Isn't that America today? thumbing its nose at God, or as the Argentines do this to God. That's America today. That's an expression in South America that just means, I don't care. That's America to God. Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. That's what God will do, does to the Sardis church that refuses to watch and repent. That's what God did to Edom. That's what He did to Israel. And that's, what He'll do to this nation. May we not be those that perish because we refuse to heed the five-fold counsel of the Lord given to the dead church at Sardis. Watch, strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. May that be what we seek to do this week. So, let me catch my breath here. Where are we at? What are we going to preach on next week? Man, we still got verses 4 and 5 and 6 written to the remnant. Verse 5 is important. Because a lot of people look at verse 5 and say, well, see, you can be saved and lose your salvation. Be careful when you study that this week, friends. What is Christ actually saying here? This isn't, in verse 5, a warning that salvation can be lost. It's a great promise that salvation is secured. So don't read something in there that's not there. Let me give you a little warning as you study that ahead of time. It's a great promise of eternal security. Um, and then, of course, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. <clears throat> All right, I've gone nine minutes past what I normally do. Uh, so uh, I hope that didn't turn you off. And hope that means hope that doesn't mean you'll never come back. I don't profess to know everything. Um, I do welcome questions. I do welcome debate. If it's done in the spirit of love and uh, brotherhood, Um, but we just want to be taught by God's Word, and uh, if you can show me, as Martin Luther told the Catholic Diet at Worms, if you can show me with Scripture or with common sense that I'm wrong, I'll change, I'll recant, but if not, here I stand, so help me God. So uh, um, I hope these things were a blessing to you today. I'm going to pray for our guests. We always do fellowship together over a meal. Um, so we're not rushing out to the buffet. We always just that time of fellowship is important, and the early church did it when they came together and broke bread in the early church. So you're welcome to join us, uh, and you're welcome to eat. You know uh, your heart's desire. So please join us this morning. Let's pray God's blessing over the food and over His Word, and then hope you all will just not rush out of here, but enjoy some time with the brethren today. Father, thank you for this day and for this word that's been spoken. Lord, preaching really can be a burden sometimes, but I'm just amazed at how Your Word is just so powerful, Lord. It's not in the preacher. It's not in his power of persuasion or in his oration. Lord, it's in Your Holy Spirit. So we just thank You, Lord, for what You've taught us this morning. I pray that we would apply it to our lives, Lord, that we would be people, Father, who, um, who watch, people that strengthen ourselves in the Lord, people that remember what we've seen and heard, Lord, saints that... that um, um, hold fast to what you've given us in your word and those that are willing to repent because of what christ has done for us when we stumble into sin and uh... uh indifference so father i just pray that in the lives of every believer here today or we look for your coming we wait for it not as an excuse to be lazy but as an excuse to go out and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth may we be faithful in such context as you have put us in in our lives thank you for those who are with us today as guests. I pray they were blessed. Lord, I do lift up Christians around the world, Father, who are suffering for You today, who, Lord, who are without basic needs in life. Maybe there are those that are hungry and cold. I pray You would warm them and fill their bellies. Lord, that You would strengthen those that are in prison for You. And Lord, that we would remember them and follow their example if You should call us to follow such a path for the cause of Christ. Lord, may this food give us strength this morning. May it nourish us and strengthen us. May we be thankful for it. And may our fellowship be a sweet savor before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen.